I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to season two of Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Last year, our episodes were played over 10,000 times to help listeners like you crush the PCS exam, and they did. This year, you can expect more content and even more review to help you feel confident on test day. Let's not waste any more time. Time to study. Hey listeners, we have an ask of you. Between reading and rereading resources, reaching out to content experts, and reviewing our material, this podcast takes time, effort, and resources to share it with you every week. We are humbled and grateful for the listener and affiliate interest over the past several months and the scores of messages received letting us know that this podcast has incrementally improved their test prep has been inspiring. Special thanks to the community for engaging and interacting with the show. We want to keep the podcast focused on content that informs, prepares, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. We've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. If pushing pediatrics is a part of your day or week and you love what we're doing, please visit the link in any of our episode guides and support us any way you can today. Listener note. This podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics, or send us an email at pushingpediatrics at gmail.com. Welcome back. We are back to discuss the last practice setting in pediatric physical therapy, hospital-based physical therapy. This week, we are pleased to have on with us Kara Arps, a pediatric physical therapist and board-certified specialist. She is a hospital-based physical therapist and serves as adjunct faculty, so she has a wealth of knowledge for us. Welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, Kara. Thanks. I'm happy to be here today. We're so excited to have you on today, Kara. Thank you for taking the time to share your experiences with us. Why don't you start by telling us a little about yourself? Sure. So I grew up in the Atlanta area and graduated from the University of Alabama at Birmingham with a double major in neuroscience and kinesiology. I went to Emory University where I obtained my doctorate in physical therapy and then completed a pediatric residency at the Monroe Carroll Junior Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt. I have since worked at the Vanderbilt Children's Hospital. I started in the outpatient setting for several years while continuing to work weekends in acute care. And now I'm full-time in acute care where I love being in the pediatric ICU. I also have a passion for neuromuscular diseases and I serve as a physical therapist in our multidisciplinary DMD clinic. And I'm also currently working on growing our rehab involvement in our SMA program. 
I'm part of our adapted fitness team here and help to plan and execute our adapted fitness programs and our adapted triathlon series. And I also serve as adjunct faculty in the Belmont University Department of Physical Therapy pediatrics course where I teach in their labs and also teach neuromuscular content. In free time, I really enjoy being outdoors. I like to run, hike, and paddleboard. I enjoy watching and playing sports, especially college basketball, um, and always am up for um, traveling. You have been on the straight pediatrics course from day one, so we're excited to talk with you. You've also experienced the path through residency like so many of our listeners are on. When did you study for and receive your PCS? So I finished my residency in the summer of 2019 and then continued to study through that fall and early winter of 2020 and sat for the exam in February of 2020 and then ended up receiving my PCS that June. Phew, snuck that in right before COVID shut everything down. Tell us your background specifically in the acute setting. So I had the privilege of having both short-term and long-term pediatric acute care clinical rotations in PT school and ended up falling in love with that setting. I specifically developed a passion for early mobility during my rotation at the Johns Hopkins Children's Hospital, where I had the opportunity to work with their primary PICU physical therapist shortly after the development of their PICU Up early mobility program. I then had the chance to take an advanced acute care elective in my last semester of PT school, which was primarily focused on doing ICU simulations. And ever since I've been eager to get back into the pediatric ICU, I love the challenge of mobilizing the most acutely ill patients with a variety of life-sustaining lines and tubes and serving as a source of hope for those families during such a traumatic time. I like the challenge of thinking on my feet and the constantly changing acute environment and having to do a lot of collaboration with the multidisciplinary medical team. I also spent time in the pediatric ICU when I worked at UCSF Children's Hospital in Oakland, and it was by far my favorite setting that I've worked in. I long to get back to that environment if the opportunity ever presents itself, but that fast-paced and dynamic environment, as well as the close working relationship with nursing, other therapies, physicians, it's really such a team approach. And we had a wonderful team there that was really passionate about early mobility as as well. So it was such an awesome experience to be such a valued team member. Thinking about the acute setting, Kara, are there any specific rules and regulations that our listeners and those taking the PCS exam could be aware of in the acute setting? So a lot of policies are going to be hospital and department specific. Uh, a few universal rules to be aware of. You want to make sure you know your weight-bearing precautions and your PPE regulations, as these are relatively standard between different hospitals. And most rehab teams are going to have specific procedures and protocols for management of certain populations, floors, and different lines and tubes. And the precautions and contraindications for certain surgeries are also going to differ a lot between hospitals based on the surgeon's preferences. It's important to work really closely with your nursing and medical staff because so many of these decisions are going to be more based on patient-specific presentation and going to be moment-to-moment -moment decisions. That is such a great point for our listeners. Being familiar with standard precaution protocols, isolation, droplet, and other things would be a good thing. What does a typical history and system review look like in the acute setting? Each hospital is going to do patient assignments a little differently based on their staffing and census. But for me, once I have my patient list for the day, there are several specific items that are going to be key to include in my chart review. Usually I'm first going to look at the PT order to see what the referral is for and if there are any specific precautions listed there. 
Then I'm going to look at their weight bearing orders and their activity status to see if there's any additional details I need to consider. Next, I'll take a look at the list of their lines and tubes, their labs, blood gases, and imaging to get a better idea of their current clinical picture. If it's a new patient, I'm going to read their HMP, which is going to be all of their intake information from their primary team about why they're at the hospital. And then I'll take a look at their most recent note from their primary team. If there's consulting teams, I'm also going to take a look at their assessments as well. If it's a patient our team has been following, but I have not seen, I'll also read their last several therapy notes and their PT evaluation to familiarize myself with the PT plan of care. When you're going through this chart review, what are some red flags that you may see in the acute setting that cue you to follow up with the team? So if red flags are noticed in the hospital, the next step is usually going to be an immediate page to the primary team or possibly even calling a code, depending on the severity. Red flags are going to be very dependent on the child's diagnosis and clinical status. Most children in the hospital are on telemetry monitoring, so it's important to take a look at their oxygen saturation, heart rate and rhythm, and blood pressure throughout the session. Safe parameters are going to vary a lot based on age and diagnosis, so I'm happy to go through a few specific things that you want to look at for some of our main conditions. For example, in cardiac patients, an elevated or lowered heart rate or a decreased oxygen saturation may be a sign of poor tolerance. With more of a neurologic patients, you may see an elevated heart rate and elevated blood pressure, which may be a sign of sympathetic storming in a TBI patient. Many of our higher level spinal cord injury patients have significant trouble with orthostatic hypotension. So that's something that you'll want to look at when they're in upright. For this, it's important to consider using abdominal binders and ACE wrapping to their legs to assist with blood pressure regulation. If blood pressure is elevated in a spinal cord injury patient, it could be a sign of autonomic dysreflexia. Additionally, any kind of acute change in mental status or movement quality or strength should always be monitored and relayed to the primary team if observed. And then lab values should be carefully monitored with specific attention to white blood cells, hemoglobin, and platelets as these will help determine appropriate activities for the day. Respiratory status for patients on ventilators and or on ECMO should always be considered to understand how much respiratory support they're on and then to discuss with the primary providers what activities are appropriate. Those are all great things to remember. Another plug here for making sure we know our normal values. That will help us identify what abnormal is. That being said, with some conditions, the baseline may be abnormal. I'm thinking about some cardiac conditions where we may see a depressed or elevated heart rate due to medications or a low O2 sat, which is normal for that patient. Those are all things that are good to review and remember. That's a great point. Like Sarah mentioned, typical vitals change a lot in the early years. So it is definitely essential to review those and understand the trends for change in heart rate and blood pressure with age as heart rate norms will tend to decrease and blood pressure norms will increase. Sarah also brings up a great point about having realistic expectations for vitals with cardiac patients. That is especially true with our kids who have cyanotic congenital heart diseases. Depending on if they were repaired or partially repaired, we expect their oxygen saturation to be significantly decreased, likely in the 70s or 80s. Most of our cardiac patients have blood pressure, heart rate, and oxygen saturation goals in the chart, so these are important to look for and to be aware of. What does a typical examination or evaluation look like in the acute care setting? So this will also vary a lot based on the child's age, diagnosis, and medical stability. In general, if you're doing an infant evaluation, you're going to be looking at their infant reflexes, evaluating their movement quality, 
considering their orientation to midline and their overall posture and tone. We always want to take a look at head shape and provide recommendations for that. And then we're going to evaluate how well they tolerate handling, what stress signs they're showing us, and their overall developmental skills. When we're thinking about more of our, our child and teen evaluations, these are primarily going to be focused on sort of big picture functional mobility as it relates to their uh, ability to get around while they're in the hospital and when they go home. For our cardiac patients, our sessions are primarily focused on improving tolerance to activities. So that's why we're closely monitoring their heart rate, respiratory rate, and oxygen saturation response. For our neurologic patients, some of the things that we're considering are going to be their cognition, looking at their tone, um, evaluating their range, strength, sensation, and again, looking at their movement quality and coordination. In our oncology population, we want to take a close look at their sensation, um, range, strength, changes in tone, overall movement quality, and their gross motor skills. In our CF population, we're primarily concerned about endurance, especially while they're in the hospital. And then for our orthopedic patients, usually our evaluation is most closely looking at their safety and independence with functional mobility within whatever precautions they have. What are some specific outcome measures that you use frequently or see frequently? In general, outcome measures are definitely used far less frequently in the acute care setting. One of the main areas we're going to use them with is for pain. So we often use the flack for our infants, the long baker faces for our younger kids, and then a general numeric pain scale for our older kids. At our hospital in the ICU, we're also using the physical ability and mobility scale and the functional status score to track progress from the ICU onto the floors. And then if we need to look at endurance, which we do a lot in our CF population, we're using the three-minute step test or the six-minute walk test. And then for our oncology patients, we're often using the Lansky play scale to assess any kind of change in, in their motivation to play uh, while they're getting treatment. What interventions do you use most frequently? Like everything else, interventions are also going to vary a lot depending on age, diagnosis, and medical status. This is what keeps the acute care setting so fun and interesting. But we'll go through some examples for kind of main populations that we see. So in the cardiac population, we're going to focus a lot on activity tolerance and endurance. For more, we do have a lot of younger cardiac patients. So for our infants, we're giving a lot of education on appropriate developmental activities and introducing prone as it's appropriate following a cardiac surgery. For our neuro patients, uh, we're focusing on strength, working with the PM&R team on tone management, and then working on how to improve coordination to be able to do functional mobility more safely and independently. In our ortho population, most of our focus is on gait training within their precautions using the most appropriate assist device. For our CF population, we're focusing mostly on endurance, but also giving some recommendations for posture and strengthening activities and trying to tie all of these with their airway clearance to maximize the benefits of, of using activity to improve airway clearance. With infants, we're doing a lot of gross motor activities, focusing on their overall tolerance to handling, and then also doing education to families and nursing about head shaping. Kara, I know you and I have talked about this before, but I feel like this is a good time to talk about how the acute care setting is really different in terms of expectations and interventions. Some kids come into the hospital with chronic childhood conditions, and the goal is usually to bring them back to their baseline, whatever that may be. Can you talk a little bit about this? 
This is an excellent point and something that we are frequently educating other providers on in the hospital. The goal of acute-based physical therapy is to address acute changes in function from baseline, and that should be considered when setting appropriate goals. We do have a lot of frequent flyers that have developmental delays at baseline. Some of these children may have a surgery or another acute event that causes a functional regression. In this case, we will follow these patients until they have returned to their functional baseline. If a child with a baseline delay is hospitalized for something that has not impacted their function, we will likely screen them and ensure that they have a mobility plan while in the hospital. Then we will make sure that all appropriate orders for outpatient therapies, orthotics, and equipment are in place, but not necessarily provide direct services while admitted. Similarly, if we have patients who are dependent for all mobility at baseline, we will typically ensure they have a mobility plan in place for transfers out of bed to their custom wheelchair and then discontinue those orders. I appreciate that you educate and provide so much information that is pertinent to that specific patient. It's all super helpful and important to remember. Like all practice settings, we've harped on this so many times. Education is always important. Tell us a little bit about education in the acute care setting. What type of education do you provide and who do you provide this education to? Education is going to be provided to patients and or their caregivers, depending on their age and cognitive status. For families, education is going to be provided on exercises and activities to perform with the family between their therapy sessions. So we might do education on range of motion and positioning for our lower level patients. Um, And then as they progress, we're going to be giving recommendations for out of bed positioning throughout the day. We might also give education on use of multipotus boot wear time for those lower level patients. For our infants, we're giving education on how to help with handling and how to read their stress signs and respond. For all of our patients, we're giving education on discharge recommendations, whether that be to inpatient rehab, to the outpatient setting, to early intervention, or to home health. We're giving education on their weight bearing and activity precautions. And then we might be giving education on using an assistive device or other equipment if it's new to them. We also do a lot of education with the nursing, with nursing staff who's taking care of those patients with recommendations for splint or boot use, and then also just providing them education on transfer strategies that are going to be most appropriate for helping the patients get out of bed. How do you determine dosage and frequency of treatment sessions and interventions? Frequency is going to be based on medical acuity, clinical stability, change from functional baseline, tolerance to activity, progress with therapies, and their discharge disposition. The APTA pediatric section fact sheet is useful for setting these frequencies. So typically children who are admitted with more chronic conditions like our chemo admits or chronic cardiac patients, some of our infants who don't have a significant change in functional mobility will be seen less often, like two to three days a week. Children who are medically unstable and not progressing with mobility will also be put at a lower frequency until they're ready to to progress. Children who have an acute change in functional mobility, say like our traumatic brain injuries or spinal cord injuries, strokes, um, or kids with severe deconditioning will be put at a higher frequency of five to seven days a week. And then you have more of our orthopedic population or our traumas or selective dorsal rhizotomy patients. These kids are only typically hospitalized for a couple of days. So usually we see them for one to three days following those surgeries until they're discharged. We will definitely link that fact sheet in the episode guide for this episode. When do you know when discharge is appropriate? So discharge is most often reliant on their medical readiness as opposed to their therapy readiness. 
When medically ready for discharge, then we're going to finalize our recommendations for the most appropriate discharge setting and communicate that with case management. Therapy readiness may be considered when it is a limiting factor preventing ability to safely discharge home with our ortho or our trauma patients. For those patients, they're considered ready for discharge when they're able to safely mobilize with the assistance of a caregiver for everything they're going to need to be able to do in the home setting. Kara, what are some clinical pearls from your practice that you think people should know to be an expert in the acute setting? Patients in the acute setting are constantly changing, so it's essential to continuously assess changing clinical status throughout the evaluation or treatment session. Red flag alert should always be high, and communication with other members of the medical team is essential. Safety is a much greater concern in the setting than other settings, so I would consider possible safety concerns first when answering acute-based questions on the PCS. We talked about this before, but it is also important to remember that therapy goals in the hospital are typically very different than the outpatient setting and should be based on an acute functional change, so that should be considered when answering questions about a PT plan of care on the PCS. That is so helpful. Such great advice for people to think about when approaching an acute care question. This is one of those things that you should cue into right away when you're reading a question. What setting are we talking about and what does that mean for us when answering this question? Kara, is there anything else that you learned from studying for the PCS that impacted how you approach your setting or pediatric physical therapy as a whole? The hardest part about working in acute pediatrics is that it is the setting in which there is the least evidence-based information. It is a very challenging setting to conduct research, and there is limited information on best care for most of our populations. I would say I learned the most about the NICU while studying for the PCS. I do not specifically work in the NICU, but I was able to apply a lot of the knowledge that I gained on appropriate levels of stimulation, handling, and caregiver education to some of the younger infants that I see on the floors. Do you have any last minute study tips or thoughts for our listeners? I think it was helpful for me to make a last minute list for the PCS that included the straight memorization facts or items I was having trouble remembering. This gave me a condensed study guide to review in the last few days, so I was more focused and less overwhelmed. I also highly recommend an outcome measure table that compares and contrasts some of the key measures. Mine included things like age, validated diagnoses, type of measure, as in reference-based or criterion-based, content areas and cutoffs, and other relevant factors. I also recommend that you schedule something fun to do the weekend after you take it and use that to help you move on. I realize that four months is far too long to stress about the results, so it's best to, as one of my friends would say, just bless and release and then wait until June and see what happens. Those are great tips. We love the idea of a last minute list, keeping things smaller and manageable in the final weeks. And Friday, we have an outcome measure review episode to go over some of the things that Kara mentioned. Kara, thank you for coming on and sharing your hospital-based pediatric PT experience. It is so valuable for us to compare and contrast the different settings and make sure we're giving our listeners key things to think about as they approach their exam. That is it for today. We will be back Friday for our outcome measure review. And next week, we will have our final two episodes with Helen and Jessica from PCS Advantage. Now is your time to get in your last minute questions. So send them over to us on Instagram or Facebook. Happy studying. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics. 
We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next time. And remember, you totally got it.